Today from the Global Lane, D-Day 2021, remembering the heroes who sacrificed their lives for democracy and freedom. We are free. These things are worth fighting and dying for. Big business, government, and media elite become one, bending the news. Not just news from a liberal perspective, but from news that benefits a globalist international perspective. China's new three-child policy. Time for pro-life celebration? No, they're going to still forcibly abort single women. And promoting dishonest and anti-Israel leadership at U.S. embassies. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Storming the beaches. 77 years ago, 156,000 American, Canadian, and U.K. troops braved the English Channel in the largest amphibious military operation in world history. Their sacrifice on the beaches of Normandy, France, marked the beginning of the end of the Third Reich and Nazi occupation of Europe. Here to reflect and remember is political consultant, public speaker, best-selling author, and son of President Ronald Reagan, Michael Reagan. Michael, it's so good to talk to you again. So more than 4,000 American, British, and Canadian soldiers died that day on those beaches mm -hmm. at Normandy. Thousands more were wounded or went missing. So why is it important that we remember them and honor their sacrifice? It, it's important that we remember it. It's important that we read our history and know our history and know the, the heroes that they were, that bailed out of planes, you know, over Normandy. Uh, if you ever saw Saving Private Ryan, that's where all the paratroopers are going. They're going to Normandy. They're going to a place called St. Mary Glees, Normandy, France. If you saw The Longest Day, uh, red buttons hanging from the church steeple at St. Mary Glees, Normandy, France. And so it's great to know the history and know the stories of these men that bailed out of these planes and ended up saving the world. If we don't remember history and study history, then we're going to repeat it. And that's proven time and time again through our history. And I had the privilege of reporting from Washington as CBN News national security correspondent during your father's presidency. And on June 6th, 1984, he became the first U.S. president to visit Omaha Beach, Normandy, for D-Day ceremonies. He gave two historic speeches that day talking about things that are worth dying for, freedom, democracy. And he said the troops who stormed those beaches were liberators, not conquerors. Let's listen to a short clip from the speech he gave at the cemetery. This land is secure. We are free. These things are worth fighting and dying for. We will always remember. We will always be proud. We will always be prepared so we may be always free. Your dad was the first president to go there. He set a precedent. He got a bit choked up there. He really felt it, didn't he? Well, yeah, my dad was a Boy Scout. I mean, growing up uh, with my dad, he picked me up on Saturday morning for my mom's, riding out to the ranch, sitting in the right front seat of his station wagon, and he would regale me with the songs of the military. He would sing, you know, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. He would sing the Army and the Navy songs and the Marine Corps and the Coast Guard and, and what have you. I mean, he was a Boy Scout. We always felt if he didn't make the President of the United States, we could always give him a merit badge and an Eagle badge uh, as a Boy Scout. It's just the person that he was. So when he spoke, you know, people need to listen to those speeches because you didn't just hear the speeches my father gave. You actually felt the speeches that he gave. And we became, through the Reagan Legacy Foundation, became very involved with Normandy and St. Mary Glees because of that speech in 1984. I was invited to 
raised the American flag in the American cemetery a few years ago uh, there at Normandy. And I went there on a Sunday and raised the American flag at the American cemetery and really got to walk around and get to know the people. And there in St. Mary Glees, the Airborne Museum, and said, what, what can our foundation do to, to help really remember these heroes that were willing to give their lives in the European theater in the Second World War? We started a brick project called Walkway to Victory. And people go to walkwaytovictory.com and, and they can order a brick with the name of a loved one. Uh, we'll put the name on the brick, send it to Normandy. It'll be inlaid in the ground at St. Mary Glees at the Airborne Museum for all to see for all time. So how concerned are you, Michael, that young Americans, I'm thinking millennials and Gen Zers, don't really know about their sacrifice, the price that many paid for our freedom. After all, uh, I know these veterans will pass. Will we lose the memory of what happened on D-Day? Are we losing the Judeo-Christian values of sacrifice and service? What do you think? If we don't instill it in our children, we can't expect someone else to do that. I was playing golf with a 25-year-old young man before I raised that flag at, at Normandy. I was in L.A. playing golf, and I told him what I was ready to do. And he was 25 years old and had no idea why there was even an American cemetery at Normandy. I, and I thought, he's really the normal, not the abnormal. And, and I said to him at the 18th hole, I said, did you think D-Day is when your report card came home? Uh, he had no idea. I go to France, they love America. All those countries that were freed by American soldiers and are still being freed, love America. The problem is Americans forgot to love America. And we need to learn to love America again, just like those who are free because of America. Wow, Americans forgot to love America. So I know you mentioned Walkway to Victory, the Reagan Legacy Foundation. What else can be done? What do we need to do? Say thank you every single day, every time you see a vet, no matter what war. Thank them. And don't thank them three days a year. Thank them every day of every single year. You see when you see a vet at breakfast or at lunch or at dinner, having dinner, buy him a meal, pay for it. You see a, a police officer, a fireman, Anybody who's serving and willing to give their life for you and me to have freedoms and to be safe, the little things that you can do to say thank you very much for what you're willing to do, the love that you have for my city, my state, my country. I want to thank you for it. And we want to thank you, Michael Reagan, political consultant, speaker, author, and son of President Ronald Reagan. We appreciate you, Michael. Thank you for joining us and for keeping your father's legacy and the legacy of those D-Day veterans alive. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Here on the home front, is policy driving the American media and what it reports? Or is the media driving policy? Our next guest says our media, business, and political elite are not just on the same side, they're now one and the same. Breitbart Editor-in-Chief Alex Marlowe is author of the new book, Breaking the News, Exposing the Establishment Media's Hidden Deals and Secret Corruption. Alex, thanks for joining us. So how has this happened that American media, politicians, and business elite have merged into this corrupt force that is now driving our society? 
Yeah, it's a combo of two things. And I undertook a year of research digging into this exact topic. And the first one is not as surprising probably to your audience. And it's from our cultural institutions as we've kind of gotten away from God and country as the focal point of our education system and as our cultural system and move towards this sort of woke leftism and secularism, it's going to produce a lot more liberals and leftists. So that's kind of not surprising to people, though I do get into detail about that. The thing that was really shocking to me, though, when I dug into this over the course of a year was the corporatism, the nature of how many of these companies are designed to report news, not just news from a liberal perspective, but from news that benefits a globalist international perspective that helps their business climate, which is pretty stunning. But if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. If you look at ABC News, it's really part of ABC Disney, which is mega interests overseas, including in China. How about NBC, which is really NBC, Comcast, Universal? It's all these mega conglomerates with globalist interests that really don't focus on American values. And even what's in the best interest in reporting to the American public. And you give many examples in your book. Let's look at a current one, though. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton and Donald Trump were raked over the coals for suggesting over a year ago that the COVID-19 virus may have actually leaked from the Wuhan China lab. And now establishment media are reporting, well, that may be the case. So why this initial denial and now this shift? Your thoughts? Yeah, why the shift? Probably because they can't get away with it much longer. Biden's in, the pandemic's winding down. China kind of got away with everything. And to my first point about how protecting corporate business with China overseas is a huge importance to the Democrats and to these uh, media conglomerates. Uh, but I do think right now what's very interesting is all of these sides were rooting for the pandemic to have originated from the Wuhan wet market or elsewhere. Uh, Fauci, who had funded that Wuhan lab, uh, Biden, who wanted Trump to be wrong about everything. All of them were hoping it was just the wet market, some sort of fluke virus. Uh, none of them wanted it to come from that lab. Now, we don't know for sure if it came from the lab, but we do know there is not sufficient evidence to suggest at this time it came from the wet market, and the lab was right there. So it stands to reason it's a reasonable option. Uh, but if you saw the censorship, literally people getting thrown off the internet, thrown off of Facebook for suggesting it could have been the lab, I do believe it's because of these vested interests that it was so important for them to prove or to at least suggest that it couldn't have been something that was China's fault. Because if it's China's fault, then there have to be consequences for China. And if there are consequences for China, that hurts global interests for the businesses. Well, back to China in a moment, but you write extensively about the Trump-Russia hoax. Uh, for three years, members of the media, especially Rachel Maddow, were obsessed with Russia, Russia, Russia. And then they shifted to Trump's alleged quid pro quo with the president of Ukraine. So why this obsession, Alex? We, we now know, in fact, that none of this proved to be true. Yeah, this was an amazing thing to document because we're all familiar with the story. But when I had to really immerse myself in it and just to piece together the fake news stories one after the next after the next, uh, it paints some of these figures in the American media that you would normally think of as sort of liberals or leftists. Uh, they actually come off as conspiracists. They come off as almost WWE pro wrestling people who are reporting some sort of fiction. And Rachel Maddow is the star of this. I mean, she comes off almost like a kook. Uh, in the book. And I know she's a very bright person. She got a Rhodes Scholarship, so she's got a reasonably high IQ. 
But she kept peddling to her audience this phony narrative that Robert Mueller debunked. But then they stuck with it and they stuck with it. And to this day, you'll even hear people like Adam Schiff, for example, cite the Russian collusion hoax as if it wasn't a total fraud. And it just shows you how many people in our media are living in an alternate universe. And you actually suggest that China is the bigger threat to the U.S. and media companies. Corporations are in bed with uh, this U.S. adversary. You talk about kissing the communist ring. That's in a chapter in the book you titled Beijing Bloomberg. It's about Michael Bloomberg and Bloomberg News. And you mentioned the spiking of an investigative report about corruption and the family of China's President Xi. Tell us about that. Yeah, when I dug into the China corporate connections to American media conglomerates, the thing that was most shocking was exactly how deeply embedded the Bloomberg uh, company is to Beijing and how closely they work together. Uh, now, maybe not everyone in your audience goes to Bloomberg, but I'll tell you, Bloomberg is one of the most powerful news outlets in world history. And that's not an understatement. They almost have a monopoly over financial news. So when the world looks at financial news, uh, they see it through the lens of Bloomberg, which is led by Michael Bloomberg. And Trump made fun of him and called him Mini Mike, and it was hilarious, and we all had a good laugh. Uh, but he's really almost more like a Napoleonic figure. He's got a, a massive totalitarian streak. We saw it when he was mayor of New York, banning big gulps, and uh, he's a big gun grabber, and he funds almost every corner of the Democrat Party. Uh, but he's also really gone out of his way, including flying to Beijing and literally meeting with the top propagandists in Beijing uh, in order to preserve the business interests of Bloomberg LP, which is his gigantic news business news company. And when he's come back, he's come back with these contracts that allow him far more access to any other American competitor. And he is able to get all this news and to be able to sell product into China, et cetera. Uh, but what this does is it ensures a certain level of obsequiousness to the Chinese regime. And that includes excluding human rights abuses in China, uh, mass amounts of pollution in China. I document it all in the book, but it's pretty stunning how far Bloomberg is willing to go. And not to mention uh, our politicians as well, maybe our president, Nancy Pelosi, and uh, their connections with China. Okay, there's a lot more that we could discuss, but we're out of time, Alex. The book is Breaking the News, Exposing the Establishment Media's Hidden Deals and Secret Corruption. Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. China announced this week that it may allow married couples to have three children. The latest census shows only 12 million babies were born in the country in the last year. That's the fourth year in a row that the birth rate dropped. However, our next guest says pro-life celebrations may be a bit premature. Here to set us straight is Reggie Littlejohn. Ms. Littlejohn is president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers. Reggie, for more than three decades, China enforced a one-child policy to control population growth. In 2015, it allowed up to uh, two children for couples, now three most pro-lifers would celebrate that, saying, well, it means fewer abortions. But I know you don't necessarily agree. Why is that? Well, thank you so much for asking me, Gary. And, and the, the situation was the same when China went from a one-child policy to a two-child policy. People celebrated, yay, it's the end of the one-child policy. And I said, no, they're going to still forcibly abort single women, and they're still going to forcibly abort uh, a third children. And sure enough, Radio Free Asia came out with a report just at the end of last year, that according to an official Chinese mouthpiece, China aborts 8 million extra births 
a year. Now they have another, they, they abort probably 23 million a year total, but 8 million of the, are those extra births. And I believe that most of those extra births are single women who do not have permission to have babies. And that is going to be the same under the three child policy. So what else can you tell us, not only about the single Chinese women, but uh, also gender side? That's an issue there. It sure is, Gary. And this is something that people don't really think about. So in China, we have son preference. People want to have a boy. And so when China went from a one-child policy to a two-child policy, the people who had a girl said, okay, well, let's have a boy on the second child. And they did, and there, there was one couple where they had a, a daughter under the one-child policy. They thought that they were one and done. And then the two-child policy came along and the husband said, let's have a kid, but let's have make sure it's a boy. And he forced his wife to abort four baby girls in a year and she died. So I think that most of the people, are, I'm, I'm concerned that many of the people who will have a third child are people who already have two daughters and they're willing to have that third child if that third child can be a boy. And I will be very surprised if the sex ratios are not skewed heavily towards males under the three-child policy. Yeah, and right here in the U.S., we have kits now where you can see if you're going to have a girl or a boy. I'm sure that women will choose abortion for that as well. So we've heard countless stories of ethnic Uyghur women and genocide. So from gendercide to genocide... Uh, forced abortion, sterilizations for them. So does this new law pertain to them or doesn't it? Does it or doesn't it? Well, now that is the million-dollar question because the, the Chinese Communist Party is committing genocide against the Uyghurs, and they have been using the, the two-child policy as an excuse to persecute Uyghurs who have more than two children. So that if a couple has three children, uh, they they will they have actually put them in internment or concentration camps because of their third child and removed their children. It's it's horrible. So my question to the Chinese Communist Party is: Okay, now you have a three-child policy. Are you going to release every parent that you have jailed because that, that parent has three children? And are you going to restore their children to them? Wow, good point there. And the U.S. Supreme Court this week ruled unanimously against a Chinese asylum seeker who claimed communist Chinese officials assaulted and tortured him when he tried to uh, prevent his baby from being forcefully aborted. Apparently, his wife and daughter returned to China, so the court said that he failed to prove that his life or safety was under threat if he returned. But many Chinese do flee to the U.S. to escape forced abortion. Tell us about that. Well, uh... This was this has been more common um, in the past, but yes, people have fled China because either they were afraid of a forced abortion or they had experienced a forced abortion, and that has been a reason to to grant asylum in the United States. Do you, do you think we should, Reggie? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I think that that people who are trying to to flee one of the most egregious human rights atrocities on the face of the earth um, should be able to, to, to have asylum in the United States. So I support that rule. Okay, Reggie Littlejohn, President of Women's Rights Without Frontiers. Thanks for setting us straight on this. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. First, it was the gay pride flag. Now U.S. embassies around the world are displaying Black Lives Matter flags. 
It comes at the direction of Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and U.S. taxpayers are footing the bill. In a George Floyd video posted to his Twitter account, Blinken said if the U.S. is to be a credible force for human rights around the world, it must face the realities of racism and hatred here at home. We can't sweep our shortcomings under the rug or pretend they don't exist. We need to face them openly and honestly, even if that's ugly, even if that's painful. That's how we live up to our values and how we're able to effectively stand up for them worldwide. Yes, Secretary Blinken, America needs to walk the walk, not just talk the talk, especially when it comes to equal justice under the law, not equity. But that doesn't require us to fly what is clearly the flag of a political movement at U.S. embassies worldwide. I guess Blinken doesn't care if people in other countries see this as an endorsement of inflammatory speech and dishonest leadership. BLM co-founder Patrice Cullors would like to see Israel destroyed. She calls it an imperialist state. I wonder what Israelis think of the BLM flag flying over U.S. embassies. Does the U.S. government share those subversive sentiments? Colors recently resigned from BLM after reports revealed that she had purchased a $1.4 million home in an upscale Los Angeles neighborhood. Her property portfolio now exceeds a reported $3 million. Not bad for an avowed Marxist. Equity for thee, but elitist living for me. And at least 10 BLM chapters throughout the United States also wonder whatever happened to their share of the $90 million donated to the nonprofit foundation since last summer. New York Congresswoman Nicole Meliotakis has introduced legislation banning U.S. embassies from flying the BLM flag or any other flag with a political message. It's called the Stars and Stripes Act of 2021. Folks, Congress should pass this act and it needs to be signed into law. The only flag that should be flown over U.S. embassies is the stars and stripes. Politics has no place at our embassies. Our ambassadors and the U.S. government employees who work there represent and serve all Americans. They must not advance any political agenda. Partisanship has no place in government agencies and embassies. Otherwise, the door is wide open for U.S. embassies and other government buildings to display a vast array of political causes. So whose flags do we choose? Does it depend on those in power, the party controlling the embassy? Today, it's gay rainbow and BLM flags, and tomorrow, it could lead to this, Antifa, or even this. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News Channel, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.